I just want to read a partial section. Isaiah 65, verse 2, and then partway through verse 3. And like this morning, uh, I don't plan on doing an exposition of these verses, but I do believe these verses will set before us uh, the theme that I want to get to. You'll remember that sometimes when we meet on Sunday nights, we call it, we refer to it as Sunday school because you're going to have to think a little more deeply uh, as we walk through the confession and we look at words and phrases. But hopefully, this passage of Scripture will at least put an image in your head. We're in paragraph one of section or of chapter two of our confession, and we've just been studying the attributes of God. So as I read these verses, I want you to consider the God who is speaking here, beginning in verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would bless the reading of your Word, that you would give us attentive hearts and attentive minds. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in this study. And most of all, Father, may we revel and rejoice and worship you, our God, who are so long-suffering with us. We thank you for your patience, Father. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. You'll remember that I said several weeks ago that some of the attributes of God, when we study them, are so far removed from our depravity, that is, they are so unlike us, that the best way for us to begin to understand them is to think of or look at the opposite of that attribute in ourselves. So I want to just throw out a couple concepts or ideas. I want you to think about this. Just think about our society. For example, the idea of second-day shipping. When I was young, if you wanted to order something, everything was four to six weeks. Now we have three to five-day, second-day shipping. If you pay, you know, $50 of shipping... You can actually get it the next day. Why is that? It's because we can't wait. We don't want to wait for a week. Self-checkout. Because we don't want to wait in line behind somebody else. Now we've gone beyond self-checkout where we actually have online order and store pickup. Because we don't even want to wait on ourselves to get our own groceries. We have the drive-through window. So you got your fast food restaurant, it's fast. And then you got your drive-through window so that you don't even have to get out of your car. That's even faster. 
Now McDonald's is, you know, revolutionizing the fast food industry with two lanes in the drive-through because, again, we don't want to wait in one lane. We have direct deposit because we don't want to wait in line at the bank. When you think about the internet, when the internet first began to explode, all of a sudden you've got the entire world of information at your fingertips. And nobody complained about having the entire world of information at their fingertips. And then they developed high-speed internet. And all of a sudden, we can't wait 30 seconds to connect to the internet anymore. I don't want to wait to have all of the information in the world at my fingertips. Don't make me wait 3 seconds or, or 30 seconds. Don't make me wait five minutes. I don't want to wait for that page to load. If it doesn't load, we start clicking, we're clicking, 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 because we don't want to wait. Interstate highways, because we don't want to stop at stoplights. And then we make a highway, and then we put two lanes so that we can have a fast lane, because we don't want to wait behind the slow people as we travel in a car across the country powered by an internal combustion engine, and we're mad if we have to wait behind somebody in lines. We have to have the fast lane. We are impatient people. We do not want to wait. And this is revealed to me most often, and probably some of you are learning this, when we begin to deal with children. We are impatient with our children. We're impatient when they don't know how to walk at a year or 18 months. They have been a, a, a a person out of the womb learning how to be a human being for 18 months and we're upset because they can't walk very well yet. So they put them in the stroller. We don't want to have to wait on them to walk. We're impatient. And that reveals to us our impatience. But even more than that, what reveals to us our impatience is when we begin to study God's patience, God's superabundant patience. And you'll notice that our confession, chapter 2 and paragraph 1, were drawing to the end there, but we have this phrase, after reading that God is most loving, I'm carrying over the word most, He is also most gracious, He is most merciful, and I'm going to carry it over one more time, and we see, and we confess that our God, the God of the Bible, is most long-suffering. God is most long-suffering. We typically refer to this as the patience of God. Long-suffering is usually just the, 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 the more archaic term. The more modern term is patience. I do believe long-suffering probably gets the point across better. God is most long-suffering to the superlative degree. God is more long-suffering than any other being. He is the most long-suffering. No one is more long-suffering, more patient than our God. As a matter of fact, God cannot be any more patient than He is. He can't be any more long-suffering. My mind is always taken to the, the, the video clip of when they asked R.C. Sproul, you know, if God is so slow to anger, then why did He react this way to Adam? What God did with Adam in the garden was most long-suffering. I'll get back to that toward the end. God is most long-suffering. And that word suffering, when we hear it, we typically think of the, the negative idea of our suffering. But the word suffer is not always negative. It, it means to tolerate, to permit, or to allow. 
To suffer is to endure or to put up with or to accept without full agreement. In our terminology, we would say let. I will let you do something. That's the same idea. It's synonymous with this word suffering. If I say I will suffer you to use my car, what I'm saying is I'll let you use it. Now these words, tolerate, permit, allow, let, or suffer, they carry the idea of, for us anyway, of inactivity, of not doing anything. Unless you are referring to the, uh, the postmodern definition of tolerate, which would be celebrate and encourage and support. Toleration, permittance, allowing, suffering is usually just doing nothing. I'll just let you do something. You could do something, but you don't. You're suffering a thing to happen by not stopping it, by not acting. I could stop you from using my car, but I'll not stop you. And in so doing, I let you use it. I suffer you to use it. To suffer is to tolerate, to permit. And so when we say that God is most long-suffering, we are saying that God has been the longest in tolerating, in suffering something. Now we have to be more specific. Here in, in the confession, I've said that we're studying this, these attributes uh, that concern with God's uh, ethical perfections as He deals with us. As the Holy God comes into confrontation with sinful man, we begin to see all of these moral and ethical attributes like most loving, most gracious, most merciful, and here, most long-suffering. This is how He deals with man. So what does it look like for God to suffer in relation to us? What is God tolerating? What's He suffering? Well, God is long-suffering with our sin. Well, we could be even more specific and say He's long-suffering with us. He tolerates us. He endures us. He puts up with us and our sin. But He's also... As we've seen, loving with regard to our sin. He's gracious with regard to our sin. He's merciful with regard to our sin. And so what exactly does it mean that God is long-suffering or that God is patient with our sin? It means that while every sin should be met with immediate, eternal, divine retribution because sins are committed against the eternal holiness of God, instead, God does not act with immediate, eternal, divine retribution. Now when I say that, it sounds again like inactivity, that He's just doing nothing. God just doesn't do what He could do. But remember, there is no potential in God. God is never in a place where He's just doing nothing. He is everlasting, eternally, pure act. And so His patience or His long-suffering is not inactivity, it's activity. God is not simply long-suffering, he, he exercises long-suffering. It's something that He does. So then, for us... If I let you do something, I'm just putting my hands down. I will let you 
do it. I will allow. I will suffer you. But for God, it's not that. He's actually doing something. So what is it that He's doing? What is the action that is being described when we say that God is long-suffering or God is patient? What's the action? Well, let me give you my definition. Everybody has their own definition. The long-suffering of God is the specific power in God which He exercises over His justice in order to bring salvation to men. The specific power in God which He exercises over His justice in order to bring salvation to men. Now that sounds a lot different than God just waits or God is not doing anything. He's just letting you do something. But let me read the, the definitions from some other men so that you know that I'm not crazy. Stephen Charnock says, quote, He moderates His provoked justice and forbears to revenge the injuries He daily meets with in the world. End quote. Octavius Winslow says, quote, But what is the patience of God? It is the power of God over Himself. End quote. John Gill says that it is no other than a moderation of his anger, a restraint of that, a deferring of the effects of it, at least for a while, according to his sovereign will. And then A.W. Pink says that we would define the divine patience as that power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long in punishing them. I tried to summarize and shorten some of that. The specific power in God which He exercises over His justice in order to bring men to salvation. Now let me open that up. The patience or the long-suffering of God is a power. Yes, long-suffering and patience, this is a moral attribute, but this moral attribute actually finds its source in God's omnipotence. Long-suffering, again, is something God does. It is an execution of power. He exerts long-suffering. He exerts patience. Now, as are all of God's attributes, God's long-suffering, God's patience is equal to His very nature. It's one in God. Were He not long-suffering, He would not be God. Because He is God, He is long-suffering. God's patience is an exertion of power which is synonymous with God Himself. It is, it is if we could say it this way, God acting upon Himself. It is a power in God. But it is that power in God which He exercises over His justice. Now this is where it tends to get a little confusing. We've not studied God's justice, but God's justice is essentially the overflow of God's holiness in response to man's sin and rebellion. Because God is perfectly holy, He is also perfectly just. And so His justice comes into play when He encounters man's sin. When the holiness of God runs headlong into the sinfulness of man, there must be justice. He must deal in justice. And because He is Himself the perfect standard of righteousness and perfection, 
anything that opposes, anything that contradicts the righteousness and the perfection of God is to be met with immediate justice. Justice, when it is executed upon sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. When you sin, you earn death. That is perfectly just. Spiritual, physical, and eternal death are all just and perfect when they are given as a reward or a response or a payment for sin. And it should be immediate. Immediate punishment would be perfect justice with our children. Immediate punishment. Immediate correction. Not one, two, I'm counting. One, two, don't make me get to three. One, two, that's not justice. That's not correction. Punishment should be quick and swift. And that's the way God deals. We learned that from Him. We didn't, we didn't come up with that. We learned that from Him. Justice should be swift and immediate. Remember also that God is infinite in perfection. And so any sin committed against God, because it is done against one of infinite value and perfection, is deserving of infinite punishment. So add that to your adjectives of punishment. Perfect justice would have to be immediate. So perfect justice would be God's immediate response to any single sin with the outpouring of His infinite punishment in a single moment. It's mercy that sinners are allowed an eternity in hell to pay their debt. That's mercy. That's merciful. Because it should be poured out on them in a moment. But God prolongs their suffering that would be justice. Immediate outpouring of infinite punishment in a single moment. But we can all, every one of us, look at our lives and look at the world around us and we can see that that's not what's happening. God has not responded to your sin with immediate and eternal outpouring of infinite justice. He's not. God is not executing and... and I'm going to clarify, this sounds like heresy, but hopefully this will all come together. God is not executing perfect justice as an immediate reaction to any single sin. Now how is that? How can God... Here's the, the, the question. Ultimately, all of these conundrums, the nature of God and what He's doing with man, all of these conundrums are, are uh, verified or reconciled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But how is it that God can be perfectly just and not respond to every sin with infinite punishment? The answer is because He's long-suffering. He exercises power over His own justice, holding it back until such a time as He chooses to release it. That's long-suffering. That's patience. That God would hold back even for a moment from lashing out in an eternity's worth of vengeance and pouring it out in full force, exhausting every drop of it in an even shorter moment in response to the creature's first thought of sin is an exercise of divine patience that requires still yet an eternity's worth of omnipotence. And yet He restrains it. He is 
long-suffering. He holds it back, not just for a moment, but for a moment, and a minute, and an hour, and a day, and a week, and months, and years. He holds and restrains. He is patient with us. That God would exercise patience even for the twinkling of an eye in the presence of a single sin is more patience than we will ever imagine. He's long-suffering because He is infinite. That's how He can be long-suffering and yet someday release His hands and allow His wrath to be poured forth. Long-suffering no longer executed. Patience no longer being executed and we can say it's infinite. It's still infinite because an infinite God did it. An infinite God exercising patience for just a second is infinite long-suffering, infinite patience. And yet we get patient or impatient with our children. We get impatient with the world around us very often because we've made an idol out of ourselves. We've made an idol out of our time, out of our plans. We've made an idol out of one another, out of our reputation with others. Very often we demand that people be patient with us, and yet we show very little patience with others. We, we feel very pious when we exercise patience just for a little bit. Do we not? In moments of anger, men will say, you know, I did really good to, to just keep my mouth shut. I did really good. I, we might tell another person, you need to be the bigger man and just walk away from that confrontation, endure the struggle, restrain yourself. And we feel good about that. I, was, I really did good to be patient for a minute. Very often, the only reason we're doing that is because we know the consequences. We, we know retaliation would be wrong, and so we don't act. And yet for God, it would be perfectly right and good for Him to give immediate vent to His anger. It wouldn't be wrong. We wouldn't say, God, you're, you're in a hurry. You're, you're jumping to conclusions. It would be right. His anger is simply His justice manifested against sin, which is an affront to His own moral character. So it would be right for Him to execute His justice. It would be right for Him to hold His anger back for a time because He's God. It's perfect that He does so. A flame placed next to an ice cube cannot help but be the melting agent on that ice cube because of the nature of the flame and the nature of ice. Due to the nature of both, a reaction occurs when they come into contact with one another. And it's very similar with God and with men. Because God is God, perfectly holy, perfectly just, and we are men, sinful and unclean. When we come into contact with one another, God is the melting agent. And men cannot help but melt in His presence. But imagine if that flame could restrain its flameness, its fireness, its melting power, and leave ice unaffected. Imagine. I could hold an ice cube and light a lighter and it not melt. What would we do except call men and say, come and look at this. Look, you've got to see this. What, the, the fire's hot. Y'all fire's hot. What, the, the ice cube's cold. Well, all ice is cold. No, 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 look. The fire's not melting the ice. 
We would, we would draw men to come and to look at this fire that's not melting the ice. This is sort of like a picture of our God. He's mighty and powerful even to hold back His own justice and His own anger that He would suffer long with the sins of men. It's a power in God which He exercises over His justice. Now why would He do that? He's not obligated. Why would He do that? Why would He be patient with you? He does it in order to bring salvation to men. This is the purpose of God's patience, to bring men unto salvation. 2 Peter 3.15 says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. If He had not waited, no one would be saved. If God had executed His perfect justice immediately, Adam and Eve would have been removed from the earth, cast into outer darkness at the very thought of eating the forbidden fruit. But God did not do that because He had a plan to save a people for His own glory. He chose to restrain His justice, to exercise long-suffering. He done it to save men. Now, we need to answer... An objection. Does this not mean, with the definition I've used and all these other men have used, does this not mean that we have one attribute of God overruling or overriding another attribute of God? Does the patience of God, is it not upsetting His justice? It's sort of the, the idea that's conveyed in Psalm 50 and verse 21. God says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. That's patience. And he says, You thought that I was one like yourself. In other words, Israel would sin. God was silent. He was being long-suffering and patient with them. And that led them to believe, Well, he must be like one of us. He's, he's relaxed in his justice. He's apathetic to sin. He's not saying anything. We just continue to sin. Does this not create some sort of conundrum in the nature of God making him out to be sort of just like us? Just trying to hold back and not do what we could do. Does God's patience override His justice? Well, the answer is no. God's patience is not overriding His justice. How can that be? First, just on an ontological scale or, or plane, God's attributes are all one. We've discussed this. One attribute of God's cannot override or contradict any other attribute of God. If we can't understand it, it's not because there's confusion in God. It's, it's us. So we can start off by saying, first of all, no. Why not? We could go on to say, well, I'm not sure, but I know the answer is no. But secondly, when God exerts His patience in dealing with sin, it's not as though His justice is diverted or thwarted or abated in any way. There was no less water in the Red Sea when God parted it than there was before he parted it. He just spread it out. He held some of it back. You know, the same way God's justice is not diminished or diverted. It's not moved elsewhere or executed elsewhere because he's been restraining it. He just simply restrains it. He holds it back. When God exerts his patience, again, it's not as though his patience overrides his justice, but that God's power is working alongside of justice in order to display yet another beautiful color of this rainbow of God's 
perfections. We might could say the, the blue of God's power and the yellow of God's justice come together and then we get to see the green of God's long-suffering, of God's patience. They're working together to display all of His manifold perfections. They don't contradict one another, they complement one another. When God displays patience, it is the pure act of His omnipotence holding back like a dam the immediate exercise of His justice on the willful rebellion of sinners. Men are not morally neutral. Morally willful, rebellious sinners and God says, I'll wait, and I'll wait, and I'll wait. Again, if He were to exercise justice in immediate, we would fall at His feet and worship Him for being perfectly just and good. He's not unjust if He were to destroy us now, and He's not unjust if He destroys men in eternity. He's not unjust if He wants to hold off destruction until that time. It's His creation. He rules it. He does what He wants with it. Now when we come to the Scriptures, there are other biblical phrases that are used to describe this attribute. Patience, forbearance, slow to anger, silence, endure or endured. We saw in Isaiah all day long. Let's look at some of those. And you can just make note of these. I didn't make any slides. The word patience. In 2 Peter 3.9, if you've ever, ever had a conversation with anyone who doesn't hold to the doctrines of grace, 2 Peter 3.9 and John 3.16 are probably the two verses they've memorized. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God here, I don't think I have to go into an exposition. Peter's referring to the people of God, the elect to whom he's writing. And God is here exercising his patience toward all of his people in general. God is not or God is patient, not wishing that any of you, any of His people, any of those in the Beloved, any of the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, He's not willing that any of them should perish, any of you should perish, but that all, all of you should reach repentance. He's waiting. And so there we see the purpose of the patience of God. He's waiting on His people. Why not just, you know, wrap it up now, God? Why not now? It seems like a good time. He says, I'm waiting on my people. I'm gathering my people. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 16. Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, that is the, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. So not only is God's patience exercised in a general way to all of His people, but here we see His patience exercised toward a particular individual, a person. Paul received patience 
as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. That's us. We can look at the Apostle Paul and we can see who he was, what he was doing. We can see him sitting there watching the cloaks of the men as they killed Stephen, the first martyr. And we would say, God, what are you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Wipe him out. And then we see him converted. We see the mission go to the Gentile church, the gospel spreading now all over the world. And I can say, then he's going to be patient with me. Or he, I can see that in my own life. You can consider your own history. Compare Paul's story to yours. Where were you? Where have you been? What are the things that you have said? The places you've been, the things you've done, the people you've communicated or fellowshiped with in the past. Think about that and think about God's patience every moment, every second of every day, waiting, 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 holding back His anger, holding back His justice, waiting, waiting, and for that moment when He could pour out His mercy upon you. Just waiting. We see that in Paul's life. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul says, Love is patient. We know God is love. God is the, the full and perfect embodiment of divine love. And so God, too, must be the full and perfect embodiment of divine patience, divine long-suffering. So we see that word patience. That's fairly obvious. But the Scripture also uses the word forbearance to describe this same attribute. The forbearance of God. That is to undergo the weight and pressure of unapplied justice in the face of sin. Now, hopefully, when I say weight and pressure, you, you're, you're getting nervous. You say, well, I thought God was impassable. How can He suffer? Again, this is God's forbearance. It's His power over Himself. It's not an external force, something pressuring Him from the outside. It's something He's doing. Forbearance, Romans 2.4. Do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here it's my understanding that kindness there sort of summarizes all three of those other attributes that have just been listed. You're presuming upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience. It's His kindness in all of those that is meant to lead you to repentance. And here we again see the purpose of God's patience. It's meant to lead you to repentance. It's to give you time for salvation. God is waiting and giving time for salvation. Romans 3.25 This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. I always picture God looking at the sins of men and just sort of stepping over them. He passes over them and, and leaves them behind Him for a time. He's actively passing over them. Think about all of the saints. Here's the problem, the, the, the issue that Paul has brought up in Romans. How can God be righteous? Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of these men, they were all sinners. How can God be righteous if He just lets them sin and sin and sin? 
Paul says that God put forth Christ as a propitiation by His blood, and, and the purpose was to show His righteousness because He had passed over former sins in His divine forbearance. How could God not execute justice? Setting aside for a moment whatever we might believe about the state of paradise or glory prior to the ascension of Christ, how could the courts of glory or the, the, the courts of paradise be filled with men and women, boys and girls, whose sins against the Creator had not yet been atoned for? Can you imagine the angels watching redeemed sinners prior to the atonement of Christ, wanting to know what are they doing here? God, I remember what Satan did. I remember what a third of the angels did. And look at them held in chains and in bondage. And yet these dirt people are walking around here prior to the atonement. It was divine forbearance. It was because Christ, the everlasting and eternal Christ, was to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ's satisfaction of the Father was so sure in the Father's mind even prior to the atonement in time and space that God could allow people to be redeemed prior to the actual giving of the, or the shedding of the blood of Christ. Amen. Divine forbearance. The Bible also says that God is slow to anger. It's the same idea. Slow to anger. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to Anger. And some of the old, older translations even say there, um, long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's essential to God's nature and God's being. We love this, this sermon where God preaches His name. I will proclaim my name. Here's the sermon, the Lord, the Lord. Then He begins to open up the doctrine. A God merciful and gracious and slow to anger. This is who I am as God, as Yahweh. I'm slow to anger. It's a part of His being. In Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And here the old writers put these two things together, especially Charnock. The, the Lord is slow to anger in one hand and great in power in the other hand. That's, why, that's where we get our definition. His power over His justice is His patience. He's, he's omnipotent to restrain His own anger and His justice. Slow to anger and great in power. Psalm 50 and verse 21, we've already seen, uses this idea of God's silence. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Rather than immediately respond and rebuke Israel for their sins, he was just quiet. He just waited. He waited. He suffered long with their sins, with that people. The word endure or endured carries the same idea of God's patience, God's long-suffering. Romans 9.22, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make, his, make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Endured with much patience. He put up with vessels of wrath. Why? Why? What, what benefit is, does God receive in putting up with vessels of wrath? Well, He's not benefited, but He does 
get the opportunity to display His wrath and His power. You see, God's wrath is not abated or diverted because He's patient. Or he's patient. It's actually made more manifestly known because He is patient. So He endures with much patience. Isaiah 65, 2, where we began, we see this language of all day long. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. He just waited. All day long, he waits, and he waits, and he waits. He holds out his hands, the, the, the quintessential picture of the beckoning of God. He's, he's waiting. His hands are out. He's, he's waiting all the day, and the people are rebellious. Adam sinned. God told him, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. How old was Adam when he died? 930 years old. 930 years. God saw the wickedness of man in the days of Noah. And he waited 120 years. My spirit will not always strive with man. God says, that's it, I'm done. I'm not going to strive with man any longer. 120 years. Noah preached. 120 years. He continued to strive. 120 years of patience. Lot, his wicked daughter, got her father drunk and slept with him. So it's just one of those stories that makes you cringe. God just rescued them out of Sodom. She gets her father drunk, gets pregnant. God should have executed her on the spot, but he was patient and rather allowed her to conceive and bear a son named Moab, from whom would come Ruth the Moabite, the great-grandmother of King David. Rahab, who knows how long she had been a prostitute, and God deferred justice. Again, through her also came the Christ, Ruth and Rahab. Nineveh, that wicked city, Jonah goes, preaches, they repent. Judgment is set aside for around a hundred years until Nahum goes back and preaches again and judgment eventually came on that wicked city. But why? A hundred years? You say God wasn't working in the Gentiles before Christ? He gave them a hundred years before He came in judgment. Read Malachi and see the state of the nation of Israel after their exile. They didn't come back restored to godliness and purity. And yet God was patient with them, waiting until the fullness of the times had come so that He could send forth His Son, born of a woman from that lineage. We serve a patient God. He is long-suffering with sinners. He waits and He waits and He waits upon sinners. Now how can we apply this? Let's make this practical. First, never presume upon God's patience. Never presume upon God's patience. Surely, if the Spirit of God is in you, you would never begin to think that because God is patient, I might use that as a license for sin. Do you presume 
on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, never entertain this thought. Well, I'm tempted to sin, and, well, I, I could... I could find the way of escape out of this temptation, but I remember that we heard that message on the patience of God. He's long-suffering, 930 years with Adam, 100 years with Nineveh, and begin to assume that you might sin because God is somehow obligated to restrain His justice. He's not. This is a free and gracious, merciful act of God that He would be patient with sinners. He does not owe you another moment of patience. Remember, He's just as He restrains His anger. And when He drops His hands, He will be perfectly just. And we will worship Him. Very often thoughts like that, thoughts that would make God the occasion for sin, are sure signs that you are not converted. Sure signs. It is not likely that someone with the Spirit of God within them would ever use God for their own sinful pleasures at least without doing great and terrible harm to their conscience. In other words, being tormented like Lot, tormented in his soul. I wouldn't even go that far. I wouldn't bet on that. I wouldn't put any hope there. If you're thinking those thoughts, never presume upon God's patience. Secondly, Pray for God to be patient with others as He has been with you. When you read the biblical prayers, the prayers of the men of God, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9, these chapters of great prayers, the Psalms, you can see that it is a staple of biblical prayer to call to God His attributes as if you were reminding Him of who He is. Pleading back to Him, God, are you not this? God, are you not that? God, did you not make a covenant? Pleading His attributes back to Him. We see this when Israel sins at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God comes to Moses and says, I'm just going to kill them all and I'll start over with you. And Moses intercedes with God, or on, or with God on behalf of Israel. And he secured the long-suffering of God. God was patient with them. He did not destroy them. And we too should be men and women who plead the attributes of God to Him. We go into His presence. We all know lost people. We all know those who we would look at and say, it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. If anybody were unsavable, I would have to say it's this person or that person, someone so unlearned, so unwilling to hear. It, it appears that God has already cast them off. And we go to God and we say, God, are you not long-suffering? Are you not patient? Would you not be patient? Would you not please, Terry, wait a little bit longer, give them another opportunity, plead this with God on behalf of people. Ask God that He would continue to endure He's not obligated. He doesn't have to answer that in the affirmative. But pray that. If he would be patient with David and with the Apostle Paul, if he would be patient with you and with me, will he not still be patient with sinners? So use this, as with all of God's attributes, use it in your arsenal of prayer. When you go into prayer, and very often, um, I don't know if this is your habit for me, 
I begin my prayers with the attributes of God, of, with, with adoration, going to God and confessing and telling Him who He is, how great He is, how awesome He is. And you can go into His presence and say, You are a God of patience. I've come to you only because you've been long-suffering with me. If you had not been long-suffering, I would never be here. To plead this and use this in your prayers, the patience of God. Thirdly, you be patient. Be patient. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, this is a communicable attribute. This is one of those attributes of God where we can look at it and we can learn and we can begin to live it out in our own lives. And 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There Paul's writing to the church, obviously. He's writing to them about church life, obviously, about the various kinds of people. He gives these three groups, those who are idle, those who are faint-hearted, those who are weak, and he says, be patient with them. It is your job as a church member to be patient with your brothers and your sisters in this congregation. That's your duty. There will be some who are out of line. There will be those who are about to give up. About, they struggle to persevere. There will be some who we would consider the weaker brethren that we know I must set aside my liberties if it would allow them to grow and to be strengthened and matured in their faith. And it's everyone's job with these types of people, be patient. Be patient with them. Paul says in Romans 15, 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That is, I believe, the, we might consider it the locus classicus on Christian liberty. Here's your Christian liberty. You have the obligation to bear with the weak, to give up, to not please yourself. You are free in Christ to stop pleasing yourself. Bear with the failings of the weak. What is that bearing except patience? Suffering along with them. We need to understand that as a church body, we are us. Right? Not us versus them, or y'all versus me, or me versus y'all, or my family versus the church. We're us. You fire me, I'm going to sit right there on the front row. I'm, this is my church. We're us. And so we have to be patient with each other. Without this patience with one another, there will never be Holy Spirit unity, Holy Spirit power in the church. Especially as we see new folks and new faces. We have conversations with, with those who are coming and, you know, they're not one of us yet. We've got to be patient with people. If you expect someone to come into this congregation and begin to act like you or who've been here for years, it's not going to happen. That's not Christian love. It's not Christian character. It's not Christian patience. We must learn to be patient with one another. Bear with the failings of the weak. All of this because God has been patient with us. Let me close with this quote from Octavius Winslow and then I'll pray. When we remember how holy He is of purer eyes than to look upon iniquity, 
When we remember how powerful He is, He looks upon the hills and they tremble. And when we remember how just He is, a God without iniquity, just and right is He, and will by no means clear the guilty, and then contemplate His infinite patience with sinners and with sin, bearing long with the one and keeping silence as to the other. Oh, what a God is our God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and kindness. Lord, you have been patient with me these 31 years. 31 years you have waited alongside of me under no obligation, receiving no benefit, but simply out of your goodness to display your perfect patience. Lord, we are grateful for your long-suffering. There's no doubt we can all, in our minds, bring to, to memory friends and family members and co-workers who are yet unconverted, still in Adam, lost and in their sin. Lord, were you to sweep them all off into hell this very hour, we would worship and we would adore your name for your justice. We would praise you. All of creation would erupt in praise as you ushered them all off into the lake of fire. And yet, we ask, Father, we plead and we beg that you would be patient with men. Lord, we dare not ask for your patience without already having determined that we would take advantage of it and proclaim the gospel to the unconverted and to the lost. How dare we ask for your patience and then be unwilling to do our duty. Give us boldness to proclaim the gospel where we live, where we work, where we play, in our homes, with our children, with our spouses. God, may we bleed gospel. Lord, when we are poked and prodded and, and pressed from every side in this world, may gospel squeeze and ooze out of us. Lord, make us into a patient, long-suffering people so that we can adequately display you, our patient and long-suffering God. May we never be arrogant and prideful. May we never boast. What have we received? What do we have that we have not received? God, it's all from you. It's because you have held back your anger for a time. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, that hill called Golgotha, where your wrath that had been held back from sin and sinners was let loose and dumped in full force in the span of several hours on the broken body of our King. We thank you for salvation. We thank you that our King rules and reigns now. We thank you that we operate and we, we move and live in this world as citizens of the triumphant kingdom. Lord, teach us how to suffer 
as a proclamation of the glorious, triumphant kingdom of the suffering servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.